Well, um, we are going to continue studying uh, the Gospel of John. And uh, last week we started to, or two weeks ago, we started to look at John chapter 6. There's a lot in John 6. And uh, if you'll pull out your bulletin, please, the scripture uh, that we're going to look at is John 6, 36 through 45. Jesus fed the 5,000. Some of them followed him across the lake. Um, and he looks at the crowd and says this, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Right? He looks at the massive crowd and he says, you've seen me, but you don't believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So C.S. Lewis, the Christian author everybody has to quote, right, um, wrote an essay called God in the Dock. Oh, I should have actually read it there. I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> called God in the Dock. And it's also the name of a book, um, which is a collection of, uh, of essays. And the essence of what he says in God in the Dock is this. Mankind, in our spiritual arrogance, have reversed roles with God. By, by virtue of us being the creatures and him being the creator, we should be the ones on trial. We should be the ones in the dock, and he should be the one judging us. But we've reversed roles, and this is especially true in our consumer-based society, where consumer is king, right? We've reversed roles, and we've placed God in the dock. So we will decide if he exists, we will decide what attributes he's allowed to have. We will decide how much power as God he's allowed to have. We've placed God in the dock. 
in John chapter 6, at the end of the chapter, we're not there yet, but at the end, the crowd leaves him. In essence, they're saying, we're the judge. We've judged you, Jesus, and we've decided you're not worthy of us to follow. All this crazy talk about you being the bread from heaven and you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood and God's in control of everything. We don't buy it. See ya. And they walk away. This is verse 6. 666. Interesting verse, huh? After this, many of his disciples turned back and no walked with him. Now, if you remember, we started off with, uh, it said there were 5,000 men, add women, add children. There could have been twenty to 30,000 people to begin with. Now, not all of them followed him across the lake, but we start with thousands and virtually all of them leave. Now, the question is, how does Jesus respond to this massive defection? This, this had to be disappointing to the apostles and even to Jesus. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. And he's going to go on in this next paragraph and talk about four things. And I pulled out the old thesaurus. And here are the four points. He's going to talk about election, rejection, protection, and affection. Yeah. You go, what do you do, Pastor? Pull out. <laughs> you know, uh, Google or uh, Word doc has its own little thesaurus. So you, if you play around enough, you can get them all to begin with the same letter or to rhyme or to sound alike, okay? This is a lot of hard work, okay? But uh, first thing he talks about is election, okay? In, so, so there's this massive rejection. They're, they're all going to walk away except for the apostles. And what does he say? All that the Father gives me will come to me. Now, you read that and you go, wait a minute. That almost sounds like he's saying God is giving Jesus a group of people and those are the ones that are going to believe. And you say, Pastor, tell us in the Greek what it really means. All right, here's what it means in the Greek. All that the Father gives to Jesus will come to him and believe in him. How's that? Yeah, yeah. You say, well, what's it mean in Portuguese? It means all that the Father gives to Jesus will come to him and believe in him. Now, um, for a lot of people, this is um, hard to handle. It's stunning. For a lot of people, it's traumatizing. It's terrifying. 
For others, it's infuriating. What are we, just robots? Well, we, we have to, um, and, and, and let's admit, if, if you've never heard of this, it's tough. And I remember in seminary just dogging my professors for three years saying, I, I don't get it. Explain this. How about this verse? What about this verse? What about, um, so, so it's a, a difficult thing to get your head around. But here's the two things you have to do. You have to remember two things, and you can't compromise on either. Number one, man is 100% accountable for his choices. To believe to reject. All right? Two, God is 100% sovereign over everything, even over man's choices. And you say, well, wait a minute. If the one is true, the other can't be true. No, no, no. You don't, you don't get to trade. The, see, see, everybody finds mystery at some point. Like even in the Trinity, we seem to find the doctrine of the Trinity easier to accept. There's only one God, and he's three persons. Well, if he's three, he can't be one. And, uh, no, there's one God. He's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all at the same time for eternity. And we go, okay, I don't, I, there's a mystery there. But it seems like when it comes to this, we go, I, I, I can't figure it out, so I've got to deny one or the other. All right? Now, um, some try to resolve the matter by saying that the ones that God gives, the elect, God arrives at that through foreknowledge, through looking into the future. Right? But that doesn't make any sense in the context here. In the midst of this massive, discouraging unbelief, is Jesus really just saying this? Don't worry. God will give to me those who are going to believe anyways on their own. None of them are going to believe on their own. How is that encouraging? How does that advance the dialogue here? Why even bring God into the issue, into the, the topic, if... Uh, if he's just a passive observer. Okay. Isn't the context, doesn't the context require us to say Jesus is saying, no, no, not to worry. The Father will definitely give me some. Right. Now, question. Why does Jesus bring this up? Don't you know you shouldn't talk about this kind of thing in evangelistic context? People might not like it. Well, they don't. <laughs> but Jesus didn't get the memo that you can't talk about this. 30,000 people, well, now it's down to, to, to a smaller group. But in an evangelistic setting where there's unbelievers, he talks about the sovereignty of God. Why does he do it? I think he does it for two reasons. One, to give confidence to the 11 believing apostles. Okay, one of them's not a believer. To give confidence to the believing apostles um, as they witness the thousands defect. They need to know that things are not out of God's hands. Okay, 
And I, I said this last week, if you're in ministry, you, you've got to believe in the sovereignty of God. Right? Second reason, though, he brings this up, is to humble the spiritually arrogant. Okay? See, a, a lot of unbelievers think this way. Well, I will consider whether I find this whole God thing, this whole Christianity thing, true or false, reasonable or unreasonable. I will, I will decide this, and I will determine when I'm good and ready to make that decision, if that time ever comes. And now is not the time. I got a lot of other things on my plate right now. All right? And in essence, Jesus says, you're not as in control as you may think you are. In fact, when you, when you do a study of the whole Bible and you ask, what is the condition, the spiritual condition of the person who has not trusted in Christ? Let me just show you some verses here. Ephesians 2.1 says this, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Now, I lived many years of my life without truly being a believer in Christ. I was a churchgoer, but I wasn't really a believer. You know why? I was dead spiritually. In 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person, it's referring to the, the non-believer, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him. I don't, they, they don't get. They don't get it. I didn't get it. It was silly. I remember giving a speech in college and how ridiculous it is to believe in God. And uh, I'm, I'm a magician, so I, I did some magic tricks and I said, "See, I fooled you. All those miracles in the Bible, just magic tricks." And in my my arrogance, I'm like, "Yeah, I can explain all this. There's no God. Right? It was folly to me." Romans 3.10, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. See, there isn't a bunch of neutral people out there all saying, I'm, I'm, I want to weigh the evidence. No, nobody's seeking after God. Right? So much for the seeker move movement. You say, well, how does, anybody, how does anybody come to Christ then? We'll get there. But first, right now, we've got to realize uh, we're, we're talking about why God has to give Jesus people because we're dead. Romans 8, 7, For the mind that is set on the flesh, that's the unbelieving mind, is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Right? So, we're spiritually dead. We think it's foolish. We're in rebellion against God. We're not seeking after God. And Jesus looks at the crowd, and they're walking away from him. And he says, but all that the Father gives to me will come to me. Now, the response of the unbeliever should be not to say to God, hey, listen, I'll get back to you when I'm good and ready. 
the response of the unbeliever should be, I'm in rebellion against you. I have no real affection for you. I'm a dead man. Open my eyes. Give me life. Because in my current state, I'm doomed. Raise me from spiritual death. That should be the response. So, the first thing Jesus talks about is the election. But he quickly, in the same verse, comes back and talks about rejection. That he won't reject those who come to him in 37B, 37A was all that the Father gives to me will come to me. 37B is, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Right? It's, it's almost as if he's saying, I'm going to tell you the truth about spiritual condition as you walk away. But then there are, there's that handful of people who say, but I want to be saved, Jesus. And he quickly tells them, don't worry. All who come to me, all who want to be saved, I will never, I will never reject you. I will never send you away. Now, when, when you mention the sovereignty of God, a lot of people can misunderstand that. And they can say things like, wow, I really want to be saved, but what if my name's not on the list? And Jesus is saying, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Right? No one who desires to be saved will be turned away, will be rejected. In our little email that I send out, I said, this verse saved my life. Um, so those of you from Valley you know my story that I was pastoring up in Wisconsin and um, I just I hit a season of, of dryness and there was no joy. There wasn't some major sin in my, I was just blah. Then I started to, to, to ponder the thought, wasn't well, one of the fruit of the spirit joy? I don't have the fruit of the spirit. And I, I could love people more. I could love God more. I'm, I'm not saved. And then I, I did the math. I said, it's probably not good to be a pastor if I'm not saved. And I said, I need to take some time and figure this thing out. Right? Leaving my wife with two little kids at home. Right? She said, please, go, go get this thing figured out. So I, uh, I went on a little uh, a trip down to Florida. My folks have a place down there. And I just sought God, and I agonized. And, you know, some of you in this room, you might be, um, e either you've gone through, or maybe some of you right now are in that agony of doubting whether you're saved or not. It is not a fun place to be. It is spiritual warfare. And I started examining my life and my fruit and my works and um, did I repent enough when I first came to Christ um, did, did I believe enough did I and all this self examination now I was driving through um, Birmingham Alabama and I went into a Walmart to get some chips 
And there was uh, one of those racks of little paperback books, Christian books, devotional books and books about how to be a better parent and all. But there were a bunch of collections of Spurgeon's sermons, Charles Haddon Spurgeon from the 1800s. And I figured out, I'll, I'll grab some of those and I bought some Spurgeon sermons. And um, in one of those sermons, Spurgeon preaches not on 37A, but on 37B, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And he addresses the timid Christian. And he basically says this, do you want to be saved? And I'm like, yes! I want Jesus, please save me! And then he, he, Spurgeon says, do you think he's a liar? Do, do you think those who want to be saved, he's going to turn away? Believe him. Take him up on his promise. Now, it didn't just hit me and everything was fine. And it took a while. But I kept clinging to this verse. And, and that's what I cling to today. All who come to Jesus and say, save my soul, forgive me, be my Lord, be my God. Do you think he's going to say, away? Some of you just do that today. Oh, what about this? What about this? What about... What if I'm not in the first part of the verse? What if I'm not one of those people? you wouldn't be longing to be in the second part of the verse. All right? Let's not worry about the first part of the verse. Let's claim this promise. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Take him up at his word. Now, some people go, but what if I believe now, but I drop the ball? What if um, I, I lose my faith and go to hell? Next, he talks about protection. Right? What if I could assure you that not only is it your will that you not be lost, but it's God's will to keep you from being lost. Jesus says, for I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. You ready? Here's God's will. That I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. God's will is that Jesus lose no one that he has been given, but to raise it or him up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. You know, um, some people who say, uh, who, who question, all right, there's this debate, can a true Christian lose their salvation? I don't think a true Christian can lose their salvation. And people come back and say, well, that's awfully arrogant. Wait a minute. It's arrogant 
if I'm basing my confidence on my ability. It's not arrogant if I'm basing my confidence on his promise, on his ability to keep me. In fact, it's arrogant to say, in spite of these promises, I still think I can be lost. Right? So I do a, um, a Bible study with um, a group of elderly people at a nursing home, at an assisted living home. And um, sometimes there's five, sometimes there's 25. And um, we, we, we meet uh, on the third floor in the corner um, and we circle up and we, you know what we do? We go verse by verse through John's gospel. And two weeks ago, um, this elderly lady named Essie, she, she walked through in the middle of the Bible study and I said, hey, would you like to join us? And she had heard there was a Bible study because she had a New Testament with her. And um, she said, yes, I would. And she sat down and we went through the, the, the Bible study. And at the end, she said, Pastor, I have a spiritual need. Sometimes I wonder if I'm saved. Some days are good and some days are bad. So I gave her a verse, but I, I noticed she had some literature with her, and I saw the, the church that she had been raised in. She couldn't go to church anymore, so she's by herself struggling with whether she's truly saved or not. And um, I looked at the church. I won't name the, the church, but I looked up their website later on, and, um, oh, I didn't put it up here, did I? Probably good, because I shouldn't put it in print, okay? Um, but here's what it said on their website. We choose to become children of God. By choosing to sin, we choose to be converted back to be children of the devil. Okay. So the church she was in held over her head. One day you could be a child of God. The next day, if you're not having a good day and you sin, you choose to be converted back. One day you have it, one day you don't. And she, she lived in fear of that. And um, I said, Essie, can I give you a verse? And I gave her John 10. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. And I read that and she goes, thank you, thank you, thank you for that verse. I could have just as easily given her verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. There's a Mother's Day gift for you. The promises that he will keep you. Okay? Now, last thing. Jesus talks about, and I'm going to label it. 
affection. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. I'm from heaven. They didn't like that. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? You know, doesn't he work in the carpenter shop in, Na in Nazareth? We, Joseph's his father and Mary's his mother and we know his brothers and sisters. What, what is this crazy talk? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. Quit your grumbling and bumbling. Now look at verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. We'll, we'll stop, stop right there. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now, notice... that the ones that the Father draws, okay, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The one being drawn, the ones being drawn, him, are the same him in the second sentence. And I will raise him up on the last day. The ones being drawn are the ones who are saved and raised up on the last day. It's a strong word for being drawn. It's not a, I'm trying, it's, it will happen, okay? But God doesn't drag us kicking and screaming. He opens our eyes to see the beauty of Christ and the gospel. He, he opens our eyes so we turn from being rebels to loving Jesus. He produces an affection. That's how he draws us. So let me, let me close this time by just simply telling us the gospel. That, that's beautiful, that has drawn millions of people to Christ. See, it, it starts this way. Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit existed for eternity, and they created the universe, and then he created you. He knit you together with precision. And he sustains every breath you take, even though many of us have ignored him all our lives. 2,000 years ago, he left his glory and became human. He took on flesh. He was born to peasant teenagers and laid in a manger. And that little baby in the manger, while he's a baby in the manger, is busy sustaining the universe at the same time. He grew up in a little podunk town, worked a construction job. His brothers didn't believe in him. When he first preached in his hometown church, they tried to kill him. 
he healed people. He healed the lame and the blind and the poor. He forgave prostitutes and tax collectors. He ate with Pharisees who were threatened by him. He taught the multitudes with such authority that they marveled at him. He gave three years of his life to teaching and befriending and loving 12 apostles, one of whom betrayed him, another who denied that he even knew him. And even though he was God, he submitted to death, sentenced by a petty man-pleasing governor to die on a cross. He was flogged. He carried his own cross to a hill that looked like a skull. They stripped him. They drove nails through his hands and feet and hung him up to die in agony before the mocking crowd. He endured the wrath of God in our place as our substitute to pay for our sin. He died. They put him in a tomb. And three days later, he stepped out alive, victorious over death. And he will return to be worshipped as King of kings and Lord of lords. And he says, all who will believe in me, I will forgive you of your sins. And you will spend eternity with me. You will start a relationship with me now. You will walk with me. I will walk with you. And when I return, I will take you to glory with me. Do you believe it? That's the message that he uses to draw you. Believe. Believe in Jesus. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, do your work amongst us. I pray for those who may be timid, fearful, and remind them of the truth that you will not cast out anyone who comes to you. And then, Lord, there are those who are fearful of losing their salvation. Remind them that you keep us. It's your will that none of us should be lost. And Lord, we pray that you would just take the beauty of the gospel and open the eyes of our heart so we love you, we trust you, we receive you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.